Welcome to the Voices of Grambling podcast. My name is Brian McAllen, and I am the William McIntosh Endowed Professor of Liberal Arts in the History Department at Grambling State University. I will be your host for today's episode. I will be interviewing Mary Barnes, the student who desegregated Grambling in 1965. Um, we put together a list of, of questions, and when I say we, I mean uh, me and some of the students in the Grambling State University History Department put together a list of some questions that um, we wanted to ask you about uh, your experiences uh, in the civil rights movement in general and your experiences at Grambling um, specifically. So mm -hmm. um, let's go down the list and um, see what you have to say about these things. We're very interested to, to hear your, your takes on them. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your life before you came to Louisiana? Yes, I grew up in a lily-white village on the north shore of Long Island, New York, to a conservative father and a liberal progressive mother. Mom used to joke that when they went to the polls on election day, they canceled each other's votes by voting opposites. Both were involved in church, school, and community. My dad was a Republican committee man. He had unexamined racial biases. However, he was always polite and respectful to the multiracial friends of mine and my mom's. And he had... Um, also the virtues of conservatism in the sense of uh, ecological nature conservatism. And also, you know, he was very careful, never, uh, never bought things on time, saved up until he could pay for something, that kind of thing. My mom was a stay-at-home mom who taught and practiced inclusiveness in Friends, and she told me, um, once I remember, there was, I believe, a, a, a famine in maybe Ethiopia, and it was in the news, and she said, what do you think about that? And I said, oh, that's awful. And she said, do you realize those are children and people just like you? <laughs> And that was my mom. And I would say two things, that I have had a lifelong preoccupation with fairness because I experienced unfairness early on in life, being treated unfairly. And the other one was religion. And those two things are just have dominated my response to pretty much everything in my life. That sounds, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I, I seem to remember, I know this isn't one of our questions, but I seem to remember, um, didn't you attend a Catholic college? Yes, and um, yes, and I will comment on that. I, I went to a Catholic Women's College in Convent Station, New Jersey, and um, yes, I certainly did. And I was actually 
active in civil rights work there, both on campus and off. Awesome. Well, that, that uh, will probably lead us nicely into our next question, which is how did you get involved in the civil rights movement? You know, was there anything in particular that, uh, that motivated you? Yes. Um, I was fortunate in this pretty much lily-white school on the north shore of Long Island, which was um, very well funded. But I had some wonderful teachers in junior high and high school who insisted that we cut articles out of the newspaper about what was going on in the South. Now, this would have been 1950s, right? Uh, let's see, junior high, high school. Um, yes, wait, 1950s. And they were showing kids my age being mowed down by fire hoses, uh, attacked by dogs, clubbed by cops. And that certainly... Uh, raised my unfairness hackles and then again religion also in junior high school i came upon a newspaper the catholic worker from dorothy day in new york city she was um she had been a a, a communist and she had quite the history, but I um, subscribed to her newspaper, and later on in high school, when I was allowed to go into New York City by myself, um, visited and volunteered at her house of hospitality, uh, and did that also through college. So again, it was it was fairness and religion. <laughs> That's that's really astounding. Um, yeah, Dorothy Day is an, an incredible, um, an absolutely incredible um, uh, person, and um, you know I know people today who are still heavily, heavily inspired by um, by her. And um, in fact, you you may very well remember, but when Pope Francis came to uh, address Congress back in, geez, mm -hmm. I don't remember, two thousand ten, something like that. Um, he cited her as one of the great um, American beacons of justice, um, and a very deserved honor. And uh, yeah, she's a remarkable, remarkable person. That's uh, that, yes, that's it fascinating. Was, it was one of the great honors and privileges of my life to to meet her, work with her, and. Um, yeah, ab yep. absolutely astounding. Yeah, I went to a, um, a Catholic college myself, uh, Villanova, that, um, you know, I mm -hmm. was I was born too late to, to ever meet Dorothy Day, but I, I knew people who knew her, and they were mm -hmm. all just, just absolutely blown away by, by everything about her. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic. So um, continuing the story, uh, continuing your story, um, you know, when and uh, why did you come to Louisiana? Uh, were you part of a bigger organization? Did you did you come alone? How did you get here? <laughs> okay, I 
I did not come alone, and I um, was connected to an organization. And interestingly, I had um, intended to come sooner because I wanted to drop out of college uh, and go to the South in the Civil Rights Movement, but friends talked me into staying, saying I would be more useful with a degree. Um, I left college the day after I graduated from uh, College of St. Elizabeth, and I was I responded to an invitation to link up with the Grail. Um, not too many people know about the Grail. It was a Catholic women's social action organization. Uh, their headquarters, I believe, were in Cincinnati. And they promised a place to stay and an orientation to the history of the South, which attracted me very much. Um, I did not come alone, but with a close friend who graduated with me, and both of us had been active on and off campus at College of St. Elizabeth in civil rights activity. And we had been to hear Martin Luther King speak um, at Drew University just down the road, and also in Newark heard Bayard Rustin speak. And so the day after graduation, we got on a Greyhound bus, and I had $50, a tennis racket, and a small portable typewriter, which was a graduation gift from my parents. And um, that's how, uh, how we left. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, just, you know, listening to you, it, it um, you know, just, just blows me away. One of the things that I, that I really enjoy about, about this project is that I get, to, I get to talk to people about so many of the historical things that they witnessed and people they met um, that I, who, who passed away before I was born. People like uh, King and, and Rustin in particular. Um, and uh, you must have known how incredibly lucky you were to, uh, to meet and, um, and hear these people. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So you came down to Louisiana with this, uh, with this group, uh, the Grail. And um, so what were your experiences like when you first arrived in, in Louisiana? What, what did you start off doing and, and stuff of that nature? Okay. Wow. Well, even before arrival, um, Anne and I were on this Greyhound bus, and about halfway down, the bus stopped in a town where there were whites-only bathroom signs, evident everything uh, was segregated in the bus waiting room, um, lunch counter, and... I mean, it was like a, a huge bolt of culture shock. 
even though I knew of these things, but, you know, witnessing them firsthand. And we did eat at the segregated lunch counter, both being white, and it was strange food. There was this food, I thought, what is this stuff on my plate? Well, it was grits, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which shows you I didn't know much about the... um, I didn't know a lot about food in the South. Um, We arrived in Melville, Louisiana, Southwest Louisiana, and uh, there was more culture shock. Uh, The Grail House, by the way, was in Lafayette, but um, in Melville, we stayed at (laughs) an old hotel that looked like it was out of an old western stage set or something and when we got there there was a wake going on and there was actually a body laid out in the in the cent uh, I guess it was like the the living room of this ranch house and it, I mean it was just kind of shock upon shock um, wow, so, <laughs> yeah, that's quite yeah. the arrival. Well, um, so anyway, we, we stayed there, we had our own rooms, and the Grail had actually assigned us projects of teaching, and my friend Anne was assigned a project of teaching kids on a plantation. I mean, a a real plantation. Uh, All black kids um, have wonderful pictures of her uh, there that summer. And I was assigned to um, a Native American family that lived out in the boonies. And uh, I didn't have a car, but I borrowed cars and sometimes had rental cars. And I remember driving out there one time, and you had to walk through like a field of corn and plantings, and there were snakes. <laughs> but um, but I remember driving out there, and behind my car was um, a car full of guys with a big Confederate flag, and they were definitely tailing me. And I, yeah, I was, it, it was a very, very dangerous time. And um, anyway, this, this family was, was quite amazing. And uh, I d- developed relationships with the, the parents and the kids. And in um, Melville, there was a church. Oh, I'm trying to think of the name of the church. At any rate, it was um, where we went, and it was on the left, there was the main church, and then on the left, over on the side, was where the blacks could sit. And it was was very segregated, and the pastor, um, he he was really not wanting to rock the boat. And he was always warning me that he'd gotten threats, that these guys were gonna beat me up and all this. And 
it was um, it was it was disillusioning to see how deeply the church was involved in racial injustice and segregation. Yes, uh, that's something that I that I often hear. Um, a lot of a lot of people say that. Um, so let's see. You're in you're in Lafayette, and while you're there, no, no, no. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm in Melville. That's right. You're in, I'm Melville. in Melville. You're in Melville. And that's the, right. the Grail is in Lafayette. That's right. I'm I sorry. went there later. Mm -hmm. Yes, I got it. I got it backwards. Um, so is that where you were when you learned about the opportunity to um, attend Grambling, to desegregate Grambling? I learned about that opportunity from NAACP attorneys. And I, I was involved with um, many different civil rights groups, but the NAACP in particular, the NACP had different branches. I mean, they had the the branches, and then they had what they called the Inc. Fund, the Legal Defense and Education Fund. And that group was systematically desegregating the charters of the state schools in Louisiana. And they started uh, with the white schools and kept bringing lawsuits and kept winning them and then they were moving on to desegregate the charters of the black schools in Louisiana and Grambling was one of them and uh, one of the NAACP attorneys um, Marion Overton White I believe um, had said, would I be interested in uh, joining a lawsuit against Grambling College? And I just jumped at the chance. I was very eager to do it, and I had already planned to take uh, education classes that summer at uh, University of Southwestern Louisiana in Lafayette. And I um, was was very very happy and eager uh, to apply to Grambling, and um, yeah. So that's how I I learned of the opportunity, and that's how I responded to it. Yeah, I don't know if you know, but some years ago, I, geez, I honestly can't remember when. Uh, it was more than 20 years ago, I know that, but they actually changed the name of um, Southwestern to the University of Louisiana Lafayette. Um, but uh, the university is still there. I think it's the second largest public university in the state now. I'm honestly not sure about that, but still there, still doing, um, still doing good things. Okay, yeah. so after you applied to Grambling and were rejected because you were white, um, you and the NAACP uh, ultimately sued Grambling. Um, right. What What do you remember about that? About the case? About the process? About that? <laughs> that That was also very um, 
very disillusioning, very sobering, and I remember it well, um, because I know that I had planned to uh, go to court and make this stirring anti-racism speech. And um, it turned out that all they wanted to know was if I had a drop of black blood. I, I, you know, I, when they called on me, they said, we have some questions. Was your mother white? Yes. Was your father white? Was your mother's mother white? Was your grandmother white on both sides? So what they wanted to know was, um, did I have a drop of black blood? Was I in what they called an octoroon, uh, maybe one-eighth black? And this whole court just reeked of racism and, you know, don't give a damn. And I remember one of the attorneys spat on the floor. And I was represented in that court by this amazing man. Um, his name was A.P. Turo, T-U-R-E-A-U-D. And he was a prominent civil rights attorney from New Orleans. And he was very, um, I mean, people called him the, you know, their new Moses, um, freeing them from slavery. And he was, he was a, a, a brilliant, principled uh, gentleman. And uh, out of his office in New Orleans, I think the, uh, the first, uh, black mayor uh, was also out of his office and some others but anyway brilliant brilliant man and uh, again someone I was just honored and privileged to uh, to know yeah, A.P. Thoreau was one of the, the greats of um, Louisiana civil rights law, um, one of the most Indeed. important and uh, one of the most successful um, civil rights attorneys in, um, in Louisiana. Um, interestingly enough, the judge, the presiding judge in your case, I, I don't know if you knew this at the time or, or um, know it now, and his name has slipped my mind. Um, but he was the. Mine uh, too. <laughs> I'm. I'm going to actually very quickly um, look him up here. Uh, mm -hmm. He was. I keep confusing him with Ben Dawkins, who was in North Louisiana. Um, let's see. Nah, I can't find it very quickly, so I'll have to look it up later, and I'll, I'll have to send it to you. Uh, I can't remember Thank his you. name off the top of my head. But anyway, he was um, an, an uh, ultra-segregationist, and um, mm -hmm. he, was, he didn't retire until, if I remember correctly, the early 1980s, and actually successfully kept the Baton Rouge um, Parish uh, public schools segregated until he retired. 
Um, wow. He managed to stymie um, efforts from you know the NAACP and many other organizations to desegregate the public mm -hmm. schools in Baton Rouge until until after he left, uh, after he retired. Um, anyway, so. Yes, you had quite the contrast of, you know, A.P. Thoreau on one hand and this ultra-segregationist judge on, on the other. Um, right. you, you did, of course, win the, win the lawsuit. Um, the yeah. judge, in his, in his opinion, I don't know if you ever read it, but he actually, you know, wrote a, a sort of begrudging opinion saying that basically the state didn't put up a, a defense, so I, I begrudgingly have to, um, mm -hmm. ha have to uh, do this. Um, but mm -hmm. you did, but you did, of course, win. And um, so after you won, you attended Grambling. Yes. And this would have been in the summer of 1965. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. 65. All right. So what what was your experience like at Grambling in the summer of 65? I think 57 years ago. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, my initial impressions... Um, is that it was hot. <laughs> no one's going to disagree large. with that. It was a big school, and it had a, a, a big f sports focus. Uh, were, I think they were famous for some of their teams, like football and so forth. My roommate at Grambling, which was all arranged, by, was the daughter of A.P. Turo. And um, uh, I think the uh, it was my impressions of Grambling that summer. I, I mean, these are initial impressions, you know. Of it, course, it, everything changed after the initial assembly, but. Uh, there I was, um, you know, this uh, young white woman in her 20s, fresh from uh, Catholic Women's College, and, well, I, I think the, um, I don't know if I should tell you now about, I, or later, how it went trying to think the opening assembly was probably pretty soon after I um, arrived they a huge auditorium and I was sitting I think in the front row and um, <laughs> they, they, it was presided over by Rez Jones, who was, let me tell you, an Uncle Tom with a capital T. And I, we used to chant, Prez Jones, freedom's coming, Prez Jones, you know. <laughs> anyway, he was, um, so at the opening ceremony at Grambling, Prez Jones introduced me, oh, it couldn't have been more embarrassing, as a white woman who had condescended to come and elevate the black people by, oh my gosh, it was just, I was sitting there squirming. So 
so since I was in the front row, <laughs> I marched up onto the stage, uncalled for, and asked for the microphone, which he handed me because, I mean, you know, I was the white woman come to elevate. Anyway, I blasted into the mic that if my being there at Grambling meant anything, it was that I was the same as everyone else there. And I have to tell you, I got a standing ovation. People, I think, actually jumped to their feet and cheered. And I made many, many friends that day. Um, and I, I will um, probably mention uh, again in my experiences at Grambling, including um, Charlie Fenton, who came in uh, because I had desegregated the school and stayed after me. Um, and I should mention, and I will, um, Woody Barnes, notice the last name Barnes who was an African-American man uh, who had come to Grambling just for the summer and whom I later, I, we were not romantically involved at all that summer, but we were intensely involved. He was a leader on campus of protests and both of us were intensely involved off campus with various civil rights groups and also there were some uh, Catholic Franciscan priests there um, whom I uh, stayed in touch with and they were, they were serving the community there. I know one of them, there was one named Ernie, um, one of them became a bishop, bishop-like, L-Y-K-E, and I think he is now deceased. Yes, he, he was, I, yeah, he was actually the first African-American archbishop, uh, possibly in the U.S., but certainly in the South. He was briefly the archbishop mm -hmm. of Atlanta before he passed away tragically young. And interestingly, I um, ran into him again at a predominantly black catholic church in oakland st columbus um anyway he, he was he was quite amazing and you said he passed away tragically what oh um he, he was just very young he um i don't remember when but he died i think in the early 1980s um i think he was only yeah. in his 40s or something he he died of oh. um a, a, some form of cancer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh -huh, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. Yeah, but he was a he, he was an extremely well known and well loved. Um, oh yeah, wonderful uh, man. Man, yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely fascinating. Um, do you do you mind? Uh, you mentioned um, it's not one of the questions that that me and the students put together, but you did mention. Um, that you were involved in some uh, student 
Um, actually, no, you know what? I'm sorry. Uh, it is one of the questions that yeah. we put together, and uh, we'll get okay. to that in turn. So my apologies on that one. Um, so um, you already mentioned a little bit about uh, uh, President Ralph Waldo Emerson Jones. Um, is, is, is there anything else that you wanted to that you wanted to add um, about him? Did you have any other interactions with him? Did you? Um... Uh, I may have, but I mean, I had him, I had him pegged right off. I mean, it was so blatantly obvious, and um, he was. And uh, it that opening, um, that opening gathering in the auditorium just immediately connected me up to uh, the students who also saw through Pres Jones, and um, yeah, and I think we we encouraged one another. Thank you, thank you. So, um, you you mentioned this earlier. So, um, you you mentioned that you took part in some uh, protests while at Grambling. So, did you take part in any uh, student protests um, at Grambling? Things either on campus or off campus that involved other other students. Yes, I was involved in student and non-student protests on and off campus. And on campus, I think I mentioned that Woody Barnes, who has now changed his name to Yusef Barnes, led, he was the kind of acknowledged leader of demonstrations on campus. And off campus, um, the Deacons for Defense and Justice were very active. Also, um, the American Friends Service Committee, uh, the Quakers, uh, and all the groups working in the area, um, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, and there were people uh, who were influencing us um, Stokely Carmichael was certainly one, uh, H. Rap Brown. Um, it was a time of a, a great ferment of ideas and philosophies. And some people had regarded Martin Luther King Jr. also as an Uncle Tom. Well, not as an Uncle Tom so much as having a a very impractical and that uh, the turning the other cheek was just going to get um, more people killed and that um, so there was just this ferment of, of ideas going on but um, I and also um, Woody Barnes and numerous other people were involved on and off campus. Um, and let's see, um, I wanted to say something about that. Oh, um, Woody Barnes, 
uh, full disclosure here, um, I think maybe I mentioned already that we were not romantically involved uh, that summer, but intensely involved in the civil rights work, but stayed in touch and later married uh, together for 20 years uh, to two children, two grandchildren, and um, our uh, our son and daughter, having both my Irish heritage and their dad's African American heritage, and my son married um, an African American woman, has two children, and my uh, daughter. Both of them uh, identify wholly as black, and I have I continue to learn from them what it means to be black in the USA now and um, it's very humbling and uh, very you know self-revealing of what white privilege I had carried for many years I wouldn't say totally unconsciously, but like peeling an onion, there are layers, and I'm sure I still have layers to be peeled. But, but yes, I was definitely involved uh, with student and non-student protests on and off campus. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, one of the uh, men that I've that I've researched and uh, later I'm going to talk to um, some of his uh, descendants he is no longer with us but um, Frederick Douglass Kirkpatrick who spent a lot of time in and uh -huh, around yeah. Grambling he was one of the founders of the Deacons of Justice and Defense or Defense yes. and Justice as you mentioned did you run into run into him at all in your time I'm pretty sure I did and um I know that uh, Yousef Woody has talked about him as well. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that I did meet him. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, we're hoping, I'm hoping to um, talk with, uh, he, he has unfortunately passed away, but um, he's got uh, three or four daughters um, uh, who who are around and several grandchildren who knew him very well. So um, I'm hoping to be able to set up a roundtable with them because um, mm, he he had great. a fascinating fascinating career. Um, um, okay, do you happen to remember any of the? Uh, you talked about taking part in some protests, uh, both on campus and off campus. Do you do you happen to remember any of those protests or any of the the specifics? Ah. Uh, and I understand uh, this was this was a long time ago. An, an eighty year old memory, um, but uh, yes, there were definitely protests on campus, and and um, many off-campus. Um, I do remember, I mean, there were some heavy moments of 
um, I remember going, we were standing in front of the courthouse. What courthouse was, would that have been? With possibly, yeah, possibly the Lincoln Parish Courthouse in Ruston? Could have been. Um, and with machine guns pointed at us, and we're all linking arms and singing. Gosh, we were gutsy kids. Um, yeah. Um, I, and I remember one time we were off campus, and I'm pretty sure it was with the Deacons for Defense, and the um, somebody had been arrested and we were all just like uh, praying and worrying and all of a sudden that person was released and came back and I to be with us and I just remember the, the jubilation and we were like dancing in the aisles and anyway yeah those were amazing times uh, they 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 definitely were. Um, so let's see. You were at Grambling for only that summer, uh, the summer of 1965. Um, Correct. And then you were actually only in Louisiana for a little bit longer. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, um, you were only in Louisiana till maybe the end of the year or or the next year. So. What did you do um, after you left Grambling, and then eventually after you left uh, Louisiana? How did you continue um, in in the civil rights movement? Okay, well, uh, it's interesting. I had uh, for a while a, a job I never should have had, but I had a job with the NAs. Oh, at first, when um, I, I actually stayed at the um, the Grail House in um, in Lafayette, and um, I got a job with the NAACP. Get this, as a state field director, which was the same job as Megger Evers had in Mississippi and I should never have had that job um, and um, wait a second uh, but I, I guess I was there were some of the local people who had Said, oh, you know, that I should have the job. So, um, what happened with that job <laughs> was that I was fired. And um, from uh, the NAACP. And this firing was uh, documented in the. Um, in a book that um, mentions me by my maiden name, Mary Jameson, J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N, like the Irish whiskey. And I am actually 
very proud of that firing and the reasons for it, because the reason was that um, I was collaborating with other civil rights organizations, and they were getting money and publicity that the NAACP wanted. And the NAACP had, um, I, I want to tell you about this book. The book is, the title of the book is Race and Democracy, The Civil Rights Struggle in Louisiana from 1915 to 1972. And the author is Adam Fairclaw, F-A-I-R-C-L-O-U-G-H. Um, he's uh, British. Um, from the University of Leeds, and um, he had a chair of American history from 1994-1995, and he wrote, he's also the author of a book, Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, To Redeem the Soul of America, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, and another one, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Martin Luther King Jr. So, um, and this uh, was named an outstanding book. But anyway, needless to say, I have a copy. <laughs> My daughter has a copy. <laughs> and it it says uh, very clearly that um, that I was fired because I was working with the other groups and... I, anyway, uh, yes, uh, Adam Fairclaw uh, is one of the great Louisiana historians of the 20th century. Um, he just retired um, a year or two ago, and uh, he's an uh -huh. act, yeah he's an active member of the Louisiana Historical Association, um, of which uh -huh. of which I am a member and. Um, that book in particular that you cited is uh, is a remarkable work of uh, 20th century Louisiana history. One of the very very best. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Adam Adam is a is is a fantastic historian. And uh, now that he's retired, I hope to get him over to Grambling um, sometime. He he yeah. he taught most recently at the University of Leiden, I believe is how you pronounce it, in um, Holland. Um, but yes, being being British, he doesn't get over to the U.S. all the time. But uh, we certainly hope to get him over at Grambling at some point. And um, I, yeah, that's wonderful. But yes, I, I keep I, right now. I keep learning uh, details from you that I didn't know. Um, but I should not fail to tell you a big watershed event that happened in 1965. Um, and but bear in mind these these two prongs of my life for fairness and religion was that I had applied for a job teaching at a black Catholic high school in Opelousas, Louisiana. Um, the name at the time was Holy Ghost, uh, black students, white clergy, and they had uh, accepted my application. They even gave me curriculum. And then I got a call from 
the pastor saying I would have to stop my civil rights work uh, if I wanted to teach there. So I angrily refused and um, and also, you know, kind of filed that in my head under all the things that the, how, how uh, deeply the church was involved in the racism. And um, I was, all this time, very active in the community, and I remember being at um, a meeting, a civil meeting, and I, I mentioned this at the meeting, and at the meeting I was, was um, Father Oliver, I believe, who was um, a Divine Word uh, priest at, um, and offered me a job um, at Holy Rosary Institute, which I think is now like a museum in Lafayette. And I accepted, and I went there, and I taught English, Latin, religion, and phys ed. <laughs> God help those kids. <laughs> but um, that was that was a pretty amazing experience. And later on, I was also offered a job with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which I turned down at the time. Um, but I know that, that um, at that time, uh, influences on me were people and groups that, I, I think I mentioned before, critical of Martin Luther King, Stokely H. Rapp Brown, and others. And at some point that year, I left the church, which is a huge deal for me. Um, and I left for 15 years, and I have been back now for, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, more than 40 years, but uh, not un but but not uncritically. And I think the fact that I would abandon that was huge. And that I would also abandon at the same time some of my own principles of nonviolence. And that I think this this watershed event triggered by the job refusal and other experiences of racism in the church and influences against nonviolence. And one of the things I remember um, was during that time being taught to use a handgun. Um, I think it was by the uh, somebody from the deacons. And I remember it was very hard. It was hard even to pull the trigger to make it work. But that you, it was legal in Louisiana to carry a loaded gun as long as it was visible. Um, you, you couldn't carry a concealed weapon, but, but you could carry one. And 
I think I mentioned too that I didn't own a car, but I had numerous loaners and rental cars, and um, I carried a loaded thirty-eight on the seat of the car when I drove around, um, and I. So that would have been, you know, sixty-five, but. I know it was in 1967 that Martin Luther King gave his Riverside Church speech beyond Vietnam. And I think at that point I fully recognized him as the true prophet, the the prophetic voice, the... Um, and that he was then assassinated a year to the day after that speech, which I don't think was a coincidence um, in Memphis. So anyway, and I, I, I just remember a beautiful um, kind of sermon he gave about the working with the sanitation workers in, in Memphis, and he said it, it was based on the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he said when the Good Samaritan stopped to help the person at the side of the road, uh, he didn't ask what would happen to him, he asked what would happen to that man if he didn't stop, and that was the way he went to Memphis, what would happen to the sanitation workers if he didn't help and lend his support. Anyway, just amazing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Fascinating. Very, very fascinating. Yep. Um, okay, so after you left the NAACP and you, and, and you spent some other time um, uh, teaching in Louisiana, how did you, obviously you, you are not in Louisiana today, so um, right. when and uh, why did you leave uh, Louisiana and, and what did you do um, at that point? Did you stay in the civil rights movement? Did you, did you move into other areas? Um, what did you do? Well, you know, I like to think of all of us who were involved at Grambling and in Ruston and Lafayette and as a kind of diaspora, you know, of people who remain committed to racial justice and um, who are, in fact, a kind of leavening in the loaf in, in the country. Um, I left and um, married Woody Barnes, um, now Yusef Barnes, and moved, um, interestingly also, um, Woody had become a uh, theological student at ITC, which is the Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, 
And we lived briefly in Atlanta and moved to New York where uh, Woody had a job teaching uh, at Queens College. And I worked for the National Emergency Civil Liberties Committee, which is a group that is um, to the left of the ACLU. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, you know, we married and moved back to California in, let's see, I was pregnant with our first child, Nathan, that would, Nathan's 52 now, <laughs> so I don't, I'm a little fuzzy on the math. See, I think that would be 1971. Pardon me? 52 years ago would be 1971 is, no, 1970, I think. Yeah, that would, that would, uh, yes, 19, uh, Nathan was born in 1970, so it would have been, uh, 69, I think. Yeah, it would have been 69, because that's when there were big demonstrations going on here too in uh, Berkeley and otherwise so uh, anyway and I have continued uh, as best I can I've been in a lot of street demonstrations (laughs) a lot of them and recently even Um, but uh, also, uh, speaking up wherever I can in uh, letters to the editor, letters to the president. <laughs> uh, Biden is a frequent uh, recipient of my opinions. Um, and I, uh, yeah, again, I think of us, I'm sure. The others are also doing whatever they can, wherever they are. Um, That's very fascinating. I know that you, um, you you mentioned that you had contact with, with some of these um, individuals um, after you left Louisiana, um, Archbishop Lake, for example. Um, have you had contact with, with any of of the others after you left? I know you mentioned the, uh, Anne, the person you um, originally traveled to Louisiana with. Um, oh, yes, we're in close contact. Um, and uh, Ernie, I remember Ernie. Um, he was one of the Franciscans. Yes. And we had fairly recent email correspondence. Um, Again, I think of um, people that I know who were uh, active when at College of St. Elizabeth. I mean, uh, my my uh, one was uh, Frederica Hill, an African American woman, and um, my daughter. Has her name as her middle name is Cora Frederica Barnes. Um, yeah, I I feel you know, some people I am still in touch with, and and some people I feel 
still connected to, for sure. Uh, Frederica Fred, uh, Hill died, and um, yeah, and I was in touch with her husband as well. And anyway, <laughs> I realize I'm kind of rambling and trailing off here. Oh, no, you're doing a fantastic job, and I have learned so much from listening to you. Um, we've, we've come to the end of the questions that the, myself and the students put together for you. Um, before we sign off, is there, is there anything that, um, that we missed that, that you feel you know, that, that you want to uh, let us know? Uh, hmm, good question. I guess I would just like to thank you, Brian, for for doing this and for the to the students who are um, keeping this this legacy alive of um, of the struggle of the ongoing movement uh, and the growing exposure of the deep roots of racism and genocide in this country and the courage that I know that takes and the sacrifices it entails and I'm grateful to you and to them. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, as a, as a historian, um, this, I, I consider this to be part of my contribution to the, to the movement. Um, and uh, it's been ab an absolutely fascinating um, ride for me. And um, you know what you have what you have talked about um, has been just uh, eye opening and and fascinating. And I and I thank you so much for your for your time, for your candor, for um, for your memories. Um, I I feel very privileged to uh, to be able to hear them and uh, to be able to spend this time with you. So. Um, I thank you thank, very, very much. Thank you, much. Brian. The privilege is all mine. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to our Voices of Gremlin podcast. Questions were written by Simone Mon, Natalie Warren, Aja Edwards, and Alexandra Williams, all students in Gremlin State University's History Department. The Voices of Gremlin podcast is a production of the History Department at Gremlin State University. It is developed by the students and faculty. Funding for the 2021 Rebirth Grants has been administrated by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities and provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan and the NEH Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan Initiative. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And thank, thank you so, so much, much for listening. listening.